to wait as the cast emerged. This was the last performance of the annual school play, and they were flushed with triumph, eager to get to the cast party. The high school beauty climbed into the car, turned to her mother and said, Let's go home. Home? I just need to lie down for a while. Then I'll change for the party, okay? Billy Joe, you sound bad. Her daughter had been snuffling and coughing for more than a week, but had insisted on performing anyway. It's just a cold, mother. But by the time they reached the house, Billy Joe was rubbing her eyes and groaning. Two red fever spots showed on her cheeks. Frantic, her terrified mother raced inside and picked up the phone. The paramedics arrived in three minutes. In the ambulance, the girl moaned and writhed, struggling for breath. The sobbing mother held her daughter's hand and wiped her fevered face. Two hours later, in the hospital emergency room, blood gushed from Billy Joe Pickett's mouth, and she died. That same evening at Fort Irwin near Barstow, California, Phyllis Anderson was preparing dinner in the kitchen of her home in the Army's National Training Center. She was feeling optimistic. It had been a hot day on the California high desert, and her husband Keith had taken a good nap. He'd been fighting a heavy cold for two weeks, and she hoped the sun and warmth would clear it up once and for all. Phyllis hummed to herself as she listened for the footsteps of her husband coming down the stairs. He had night operations tonight but the stumbling clatter she heard sounded more like Keith Jr. sliding and bumping his way down. It was not Keith Jr. It was her husband, who staggered into the kitchen, dripping with sweat. His hand squeezed his head as if to keep it from exploding. He gasped, Hospital! Help! and collapsed on the kitchen floor, his chest heaving as he strained to breathe. Shocked, Phyllis stared and moved with the speed and purpose of a soldier's wife. She ran next door, yanked open that house's side door, and burst into their kitchen. Captain Paul Novak and his wife Judy gaped. Novak stood up. Fellas, what's wrong? Paul, I need you. Judy, come watch the kids. Hurry. She whirled and ran, the Novaks right behind her. In the kitchen of the Anderson house, the Novaks took in the scene instantly. Judy Novak reached for the telephone. 911? No time, Novak cried. Our car, Phyllis shouted. Judy Novak ran up the stairs to care for the two children, while Phyllis and Novak picked up the moaning, gasping major. Blood trickled from his nose. They carried him across the lawn to the car. Novak took the wheel, and Phyllis climbed into the rear seat beside her husband. Fighting back sobs, she cradled the major's head on her shoulder and held him close. His eyes stared up at her in agony as he fought for air. Novak sped through the base, blasting the car's horn. By the time they reached the Weed Army Community Hospital, Major Keith Anderson was unconscious. Three hours later, he was dead. In the case of sudden, unexplained death in the state of California, an autopsy is mandated. Because of the unusual circumstances of the death, the major was rushed to the morgue. But as soon as the army pathologist opened the chest cavity, massive quantities of blood erupted, spraying him. His face turned chalk white. He snapped off his rubber gloves, ran to his office and grabbed the phone. Get me the Pentagon and U.S. Emirate now! Priority! On Sunday morning, half a world away... The cold rain that had been drenching London was letting up at last. U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan, or John Smith, M.D., strode swiftly through the drizzle. A tall, trim, athletic man in his early forties, Smith had dark hair worn smoothly back, a handsome face, almost American Indian features, with high cheekbones and very dark blue eyes. There was nothing unusual about him as he strode along in his tweed jacket, cotton trousers, and trench coat. Still, women turned to look. He entered the foyer of the genteel Wilbraham Hotel 
where he stayed every time U.S. Amrit sent him to a medical conference in London, this time to the World Health Organization's Epidemiology Conference. As he was heading toward the stairs, the desk clerk called out to him, Colonel, there's a letter for you. It's marked urgent. A letter on a Sunday? It came by hand, sir. Smith took the envelope and ripped it open. A single sheet of white paper, no letterhead or return address. The printed message read, Smithy, meet me Rock Creek Park, Pierce Mill Picnic Grounds, Midnight Monday, Urgent, Tell No One. It was signed with a capital letter B. There was only one person who called him Smithy, Bill Griffin. He had met Bill in third grade at Hoover Elementary School in Council Bluffs, Iowa. They had gone to high school, college, and grad school together. Both had fulfilled their boyhood dreams by joining the military, with Bill going into military intelligence work. They had not seen each other in more than a decade, but through all their distant assignments and postings, they had kept in touch. Frowning, Smith stood staring down at the cryptic words. How had Bill known he was in London, at this particular secluded hotel? And why all the cloak and dagger? Smith liked to think of himself as a simple man, but he knew the truth was far from that. His career showed the reality. He had been a field commander, a military doctor in MASH units, and was now a research scientist. For a short time, he had also worked for military intelligence. He wore his restlessness like another man wore his skin. Yet in the past year, he had discovered a happiness that had given him a new focus. Not only did he find his work at U.S. Amrit challenging and exciting, the confirmed bachelor was in love. Sophia Russell was everything to him, fellow scientist, research partner, blonde beauty. He was scheduled to fly out of Heathrow Monday morning, which would give him just enough time to drive home to Maryland and meet Sophia for breakfast before they had to go into the lab. But now... He would change his flight so he could meet Bill Griffin at midnight. This meant he would not get into work until Tuesday, a day late, which would make Kielberger, the general who directed U.S. Amrit, see red. To put it mildly, the general found Smith and his freewheeling way of doing things aggravating. Not a problem. Smith would do an end run. Early yesterday morning, he had phoned Sophia just to hear her voice, but in the middle of their conversation, a call had cut in. She had been ordered to go to the laboratory immediately to identify some new virus. Sophia could easily work the next 16 or 24 hours non-stop, and in fact, she might be at the lab so late tonight, she wouldn't even be up tomorrow morning. Smith sighed, disappointed. The only good thing was, she would be too busy to worry about him. He might as well just leave a message on their answering machine at home, that he would arrive a day late, and that she should not be concerned. She could tell General Kielberger or not her call. He reread the message, hoping to find some clue he had missed. What was most noteworthy was what was not said. What could have happened to make Bill suddenly contact him this way? If Bill wanted scientific help or some kind of assistance from U.S. Amrid, he would go through official government channels. Bill was an FBI special agent now. Like any agent, he would request Smith's services from the director of U.S. Amrid. On the other hand, if it was simply personal, there would have been no cloak and dagger. A phone message would have been waiting at the hotel with Bill's number so Smith could call back. This meeting was not only unofficial, it was secret, very secret, which meant Bill was going behind the FBI, behind U.S. Amrit, behind all government entities. Located in Frederick, a small city surrounded by western Maryland's green rolling landscape, Fort Detrick was the home of the United States Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases. Known by its initials, U.S. Amrit, or simply as the Institute, it was respected as America's foremost military medical research facility. 
At almost exactly the same time John Smith was trying to decipher Bill Griffin's cryptic message, in her U.S. Amrit office, Dr. Sophia Russell was impatiently trying to reach a man who might have some answers to help resolve a crisis. Sophia was a Ph.D. scientist in cell and molecular biology. She was a leading cog in the worldwide wheels set in motion by the deaths of Major Keith Anderson in California, Billy Joe Pickett in Georgia, and Mario Dublin in Massachusetts, all of whom had apparently died abruptly of acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, within hours of one another. It was not the timing of the deaths or the ARDS itself that had riveted U.S. Emrid. Millions died of ARDS each year around the planet. But not young people, not healthy people, not without a history of respiratory problems or other contributing factors, and not with violent headaches and blood-filled chest cavities. The director of U.S. Emrid, Brigadier General Calvin Kielberger, was reluctant to declare a worldwide alert on the basis of three cases. He hated rocking the boat or sounding like an alarmist. Even more, he hated sharing credit with other Level 4 labs, especially U.S. Amrit's biggest rival, Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. Meanwhile, tension at U.S. Amrit was palpable, and Sophia, leading a team of scientists, kept working. She'd received the first of the blood and tissue samples by 3 a.m. Saturday, and immediately headed to her Level 4 lab to begin testing. In the small locker room, she'd removed her clothes, watch, and her engagement ring. She paused just a moment to smile down at the ring and think about John. She loved the liquid way he moved, like a jungle animal who was domesticated only by choice. She loved the way he made love, the fire and excitement. But most of all, she just simply, irrevocably, passionately loved him. She had never expected to marry, fall in love perhaps, but marry? No. Few men wanted a wife obsessed with her work, but John understood in fact, it excited him that she could look at a cell and discuss it in graphic, colorful detail with him. In turn, she found his endless curiosity invigorating. Like two children at a kindergarten party, they had found their favorite playmates in each other. Both were dedicated, compassionate, and as in love with life as with each other. She had never known such happiness, and she had John to thank for it. Then she sighed, closed her eyes, and put John from her mind. She had work to do. She quickly dressed in sterile green surgical scrubs. Barefoot, she labored to open the door to biosafety level 2 against the negative pressure that kept contaminants inside levels 2, 3, and 4. Finally inside, she trotted past a shower stall into a bathroom where clean white socks were kept. Socks on, she hurried into the level 3 staging area. She snapped on latex rubber surgical gloves and taped the gloves to the sleeves to create a seal. She repeated the procedure with her socks and the legs of the scrubs. That done, she dressed in her personal bright blue plastic biological spacesuit, which smelled faintly like the inside of a plastic bucket. She carefully checked it for pinholes. She lowered the flexible plastic helmet over her head, closed the plastic zipper that ensured her suit and helmet were sealed, and pulled the yellow air hose from the wall. She plugged the hose into her suit. With a quiet hiss, the air adjusted in the massive spacesuit. She unplugged the air hose and lumbered through a stainless steel door into the airlock of Level 4, which was lined with nozzles for water and chemicals for the decontamination showers. At last, she pulled open the door into Level 4, the hot zone. There was no way she would rush anything now. She slipped on a pair of heavy yellow rubber boots and waddled as fast as she could into her lab. There, she slipped on a third pair of latex gloves, carefully removed the samples of blood and tissue from the refrigerated container, and went to work isolating the virus. Over the next 26 hours, she forgot to eat or sleep, she lived in the lab, 
studying the virus with the electron microscope. This one had the usual furryball shape of most viruses, but it was not a variation of Ebola, Lassa, or Marburg. It resembled no known hantavirus. Typhoid, bubonic plague, pneumonic plague, meningitis, nothing matched. Finally, frustrated, she had forced herself to leave the lab. She'd already sent the team off to sleep, and now she also went through the exiting procedure, peeling away her spacesuit, going through decontamination procedures, and dressing again in her civilian clothes. After a four-hour on-site nap, she'd gone to her office to study the test notes. As the other team members awakened, she sent them back to their labs. She turned on her computer to examine the lab notes for anything she might have missed. She found nothing of any significance. As more DNA sequence data was arriving, she had a strange feeling. She had seen this virus, or one that was incredibly similar, somewhere before. One of her team members' reports suggested the new virus might be related to Machupo, one of the first discovered hemorrhagic fevers. But Africa? No. South America? Bolivia? Peru! Her student anthropology field trip and... Victor Tremont, a biologist on a field trip to collect plants and soil for potential medicinals for, what company? A pharmaceutical firm, Blanchard Pharmaceuticals. She logged onto the Internet and searched for Blanchard. There, in Long Lake Village, New York, Victor Tremont was president and chief operating officer now. She dialed the number. When Sophia reached an operator and asked for Victor Tremont, the woman told her to wait. With a series of clicks and silences, the second voice, May I ask your name and business with Dr. Tremont? Dr. Sophia Russell from U.S. Amherst at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Tell him it's about a trip to Peru where we met. It's very urgent. Please hold. More silence, then. Dr. Tremont will speak with you now. Dr. Russell, what can I do for you? His voice was that of a man clearly accustomed to being in charge. You don't remember me, Dr. Tremont? Can't say I do. But I do remember Peru twelve or thirteen years ago, wasn't it? Thirteen, and I certainly remember you. What I'm interested in is that time on the Caraibo River. I was with a group of anthropology undergrads on a field trip from Syracuse, and you were collecting potential medicinal materials. I'm calling to ask about the virus you found in those remote tribesmen, the natives the others call the uh, uh, monkey blood people in his large corner office in the sprawling Blanchard Pharmaceutical Complex, Victor Tremont felt a jolt of fear. Just as quickly, he repressed it. Now oh, I remember you, the eager young blonde lady dazzled by science.